0: Welcome to That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Michael Steele. Michael was elected Lieutenant Governor of Maryland in 2003, becoming the first African-American to be elected statewide. He also served as chairman of the Republican National Committee in 2009. Under his leadership, Republicans won record numbers of federal and state legislative seats, as well as 12 governorships. Michael is one of the founding members of the Lincoln Project, Hosts the Michael Steele podcast and is a regular contributor to MSNBC. Michael Steele, welcome to that said. It's great to be with you. So, Michael, I like to start all of these uh, conversations with the guest giving us a little of their bio. You have a very interesting bio from being born on Andrews Air Force Base to becoming the first African American statewide elected official. For Maryland, so can you take us through that little journey a bit?
1: Yeah, Michael. It's, it, it, like I said, it's great to be with you. Um, so, I, you know, I started out um, in the uh, in the old uh, hospital at at Andrews Air Force Base, uh, which is a great little twist. I'll get to in a second. I, I would come back to visit uh, as Lieutenant Governor, but um, yeah, I was born there, uh, raised in Washington D.C. in the Petworth community of D.C. So. Washington is my, is my native home. Uh, my parents still live there, uh, in Petworth and are doing well. Thank God, uh, despite all the ravages of COVID around us. Uh, we've been blessed in that regard. My sister and I, um, have been very protective of them. Obviously, she's a doctor, um, uh, and so of, of her own, of her own skill set and, and, and notoriety, uh, as we were talking before, but, um, uh, yeah, I grew up in D.C. Went to uh, St. Gabriel's and and went to Carroll High School, Archbishop Carroll High School, uh, where the Augustinians taught. Left there, went to Johns Hopkins up the road, up in Baltimore. And after after uh, graduating with a degree in international relations from Hopkins, I entered the Augustinian Seminary uh, to study for the priesthood. Uh, my my plan, my journey was to be a priest and um would like would was thinking at that time of doing some work in the diplomatic core of the church uh, and uh, as as uh god would have it i wound up uh, <laughs> leaving the seminary after about three years coming back to washington and going to georgetown law school and uh got married and started a family wound up back in maryland um where i got involved in politics became a county chairman state chairman And then got elected lieutenant governor and to complete the the Andrews Air Force Base story, uh, as lieutenant governor, I was invited to the uh, Air Force Base for um, uh, the opening of of their new hospital, which was located on the very spot where I was born uh, on the old uh, white, white, it was a, a wooden structure painted in white at the time and so they rebuilt they built this new fancy hospital and the fun part was they took me to the spot where the old nursery was um and so it was really kind of cool to kind of be there in that space um in the new facility where the old nursery was knowing that uh, many 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 years ago that's where it all began so it, it's, it's great it's a nice
0: little journey yeah, it's it's a it's a great story, and and I mean there's there are lots of little nuances to it. Your your dad dies very young, right? Yeah. When when he dies young, and you were like four. Four, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I remember reading an article about your mom, which just tells you something about your mom, which tells me something about how you were raised. And um, tell me if I got this right, but your dad dies when you're about four, and the neighbors are saying to your mom that she really should apply for public assistance yeah. to help out because she's now a single mom. And the quote that I read said, your mom refused the application to public assistance because quote, I didn't want the government raising my children.
1: Yeah, that's my mom. That's Maybell. And and the thing that people should know about that is my mom is a card carrying Democrat. Uh, she was a Roosevelt Democrat Um, And it still is to this day. So it wasn't about, you know, political ideology and all of that crazy. It was how she saw her responsibility as a mom. And, and, and I remember when I was a teenager, uh, asking her uh, about that, I was like, why didn't you ever take uh, government assistance? And because she, you know, her family members had assisted uh, the, the priests in our parish at St. Gabriel's. Uh, had suggested that she look at going on a She was working uh, a minimum wage job in a laundromat, which she had at that point been working in since she was 18 uh, when she first moved to Washington. And um, uh, so she's making whatever minimum wage was, you know, back in the day in the early 60s and, and, and had this house that she now had to, you know, manage and a kid to take care of. And and it said a lot about how she was grounded, in that individualism, in that in that sort of uh, uh, sense of perseverance and, and determination, um, and she didn't want that responsibility pushed off onto somebody else or some other institution, and that she believed that she could find a way to make it work, and she did. <laughs> <laughs> and she did. You know, uh, we, we, we had uh, tough times and good times like every family um, did and does. And um, throughout it was the, the resilience of, of Maybelle, who uh, would later remarry. And um, my sister uh, came to the family and we, um, you know, we turned out OK. Yeah, my sister's a Georgetown a UVA undergrad, Georgetown Med School uh, graduate, and I'm, uh, you know, a Hopkins undergrad and Georgetown Law graduate. So we did that all on minimum wage, baby.
0: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so uh, it it invites the question. That, you know, she comes out of South South Carolina. Is that her? Yeah, her Orangeburg. Family?
1: Yeah, she was actually yeah. born in uh, St. Matthews.
0: Yeah. So she's out of the same jurisdiction as uh, Bakari Sellers mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. that's that's there there and so they're of course die-in-the-wool Democrats your mom's a die-in-the-wool Democrat so it sort of invites the question what happened to you <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> I get that a lot what the <laughs> hell happened to you um, well you know that's an interesting point so my first presidential election the first time I could vote um, as as a as a citizen, um, was the, the election of '76, and that you know that election was born out of uh, and having to deal with a lot of turmoil. You know, the the war was over the year before, um, but the the remnants of the Vietnam War were still plaguing uh, many many citizens uh, across the country. There's still a lot of anxiety and. Anxiousness about it and our veterans were coming home and, and that did, was not going well for a lot, a lot of our veterans, unfortunately. Um, you had the, the social upheaval that was rampant, um, uh, you know, still remnants of that from the 1960s, Watergate. <clears throat> so there was all of this stuff going on. And my, I remember sitting down with my mom and talking about when my first election was coming up. I was 17 at the time. I would turn 18 the October, uh, literally two weeks, three weeks before the general election. Um, So I could vote in this election and um, uh, talking with my mom about it. And she looked at me, she said, well, you've got to make up your own mind what you want to do. Don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Don't be, you know, a follower, you know, you know, find out where, where you should be, what works and what fits for you. So I did the research. I spent the, the spring and summer, you know, studying and learning about both parties. And, and I realized, you know, as a, as a young black kid that the Republican party was our political home. That's where we began politically in this country after um, uh, the fights uh, for emancipation and uh, freedom. Um, And the role that the Republican Party played with its leaders at that time, um, certainly Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, among many others. And it just kind of made sense, you know, Um, and, and I liked the message of Reagan in his in his uphill battle to secure the nomination in 76. And what I think I liked and admired more than anything else was how he lost, not so much that he didn't win or, you know, how he won, but how he lost the election. Uh, the kind of uh, uh, determination and, and perseverance he brought to that battle, but then how he spoke as on the losing side of it, how he talked about the country and its and its challenges and um, and what that meant, and it and it sounded a lot like how my mom talked to me about the things that we were going through as a family, and how we should persevere, um, and how those things don't define who we are, that in a losing battle, you're not done. You're just beginning, you're just warming up. And I would come to find out later on as a black Roman Catholic conservative Republican from Washington, DC, there was a lot of losing ahead for me. <laughs> yeah, but that yeah. was okay. That was okay, I'm good with that. Um, and and I, I'm ready to stand always in that breach and, and declare what I believe and why it matters and why I wanna share it. Not to the extent that I'm right and you're wrong, but that we now have some ground on which we can both have a discussion. And that's what my mother taught me. And, uh, and so when people ask me, well, why are you Republican? I go, well, cause my mama raised me well. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. she did, yeah. you know, she, she raised me to to be an independent thinker um, and uh, uh, and to weigh uh, all sides, not just the side that I happen to be standing on uh, in any decision.
0: It's so interesting. And we've got so much to cover. We won't, belabor this, but it, to me, it's such an interesting thing that you would, in the 1976 election, not like Jimmy Carter, because Jimmy Carter, you know, embodied many of the same characteristics of, you know, faith-based, individual responsibility. Oh, no, I didn't say uh, I didn't like
1: Jimmy Carter. No, no, I no, said no, I, I mis- liked Reagan in the primary. Now, the general election was a very different discussion. Um, I very much liked Jimmy Carter. Uh, for a lot of the reasons you're saying. Um, and and I, 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 he was the underdog. He was the peanut farmer. He was the guy who, um, um, you know, had, uh, had a different way of talking about the ills of the country, which ironically would come back to bite him four years later. Uh, in the way that he talked about the country uh, and, and its ills uh, as president, um, which I think people kind of looked well, it's one thing to say these things as governors, a whole other thing to say them as president. Um, yeah. And remember, you know, there were a lot of Republicans um, who weren't necessarily feeling um, then vi- then President Ford um, because of his pardon of Nixon, um, and were, were very much pushed back by that. So there was a lot of there were a lot of tensions uh, inside and outside the Republican party. And as someone who was newly minted uh, into the fold, if if you will, um, you know, I looked at these things very critically and and sort of assessed how I felt uh, about uh, these, these individuals, what they would bring to the table and the kind of president I thought the country would need over the next four years. The, the guy that, I wanted in that race, didn't make it uh, in Reagan, um, but uh, that doesn't mean that, that that Carter had nothing to offer Republicans like myself. I mean, he clearly won the election, so um, there were a lot of folks who who were willing to take that chance and that risk.
0: Yeah, Carter may turn out historically to be the greatest ex president. Well, you know, Which he's ever had.
1: Absolutely. No, there's no doubt. I, he already is, in my view, in, 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 in many respects. Um He's among the, the top, uh, <laughs> excuse me, former presidents by virtue of how he used his presidency uh, to uh to remind us of the important work that we still have to do day to day on behalf of everyone. Now, you know, some of his positions and some of the things that he said, I've not been a fan of, but uh, when you look at the work that he's done to remind us of our humanity towards one another, um, you can't discount his his legacy as a president.
0: Yeah, the the word of um, accountability comes up. He asks yeah. us to be accountable as as citizens in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the global village, which is which is ours. Which yeah,
1: is... exactly, exactly.
0: So let's pivot. Um, we we'll pick, picking up on the word accountability. And turn to the impeachment uh, trial, which just came in and and went. And in in it, in in the run-up to it, Adam Kinzinger, the uh, Republican congressman, writes in the Washington Post. He said, "Most Republicans feel the impeachment trial is a waste of time, political theater that distracts from bigger issues. But this isn't a waste of time. It's a matter of accountability." If the GOP doesn't take a stand, the chaos of the past few months and the past four years could quickly return. The future of our party and our country depends on confronting what happened so it doesn't happen again. And I know that you and Kinsinger sort of feel similarly on this question of accountability, but can you take us through your thinking about the, the trial and, and the outcome? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, I agree with the, the words of Adam uh, and, and stand by his, his uh, truth that the battle lines inside the GOP have been drawn and it will be a battle royale. I'm up for that, at least for now. Um, I still hold out hope that, um, that Trumpism uh, can and should be defeated. Um, as a political ideology mindset or attitude inside the GOP. It is inconsistent with any value set that I have. If that value set includes putting children in cages, embracing white nationalism, um, I don't care. You can give me tax cuts all day long. I'm not signing up for that. Uh, so that that is where the bright lines, I think, are drawn by me and individuals like Adam. When I look back on the the process regarding um, the impeachment trial, the impeachment itself, and the events of January 6th, the only words that come to my head and my heart um, simultaneously is shame. Shame on those Republicans who were so blinded by their fealty to Donald Trump, so blinded by their fear of Donald Trump uh, and Trumpism that they could not For one moment in time, stand objectively and confront truth. Stand objectively and look America in the eye. See the pain and the fear that we had for what we witnessed on January 6th. And do the right thing. Uh, They know what the right thing is. Not was, is. That there has to be at some point a reckoning with Trump and Trumpism they have to acknowledge their role in allowing it to fester and ferment into the toxic brew that it has become. And they will have to account for that, either in this cycle or some future cycle, Um, because the consequences of their inaction, um, the consequences of their duplicity in the likes of Uh, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and, and others. The lack of support for those individuals who screwed their courage to the sticking post, as the saying goes, like Mitt Romney, Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney uh, speaks to me of a brokenness that may be difficult to heal but still has to be addressed. So I, I don't I take with a great sincerity um, my decision to break with my party uh, in 2016 over its nominee, Donald Trump, to stay stay consistently in my party's face over the last four years for the outrages uh, and the ultimate embrace of illiberal anti-constitutional behavior and decisions and to break with my party yet again in its renomination of Donald Trump uh, and to stand with the country and and, in supporting uh, Joe Biden uh, for president at the time. Um, And now having to look at January 6th, yet again, look my party in the eye and go, what the hell is your problem? Yeah. Why, why don't you see what the rest of us see and what the rest of us feel uh, and, and to continue to, to, to be that um, until I either leave or they reform.
0: Yeah, and, 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 I'll, and I'll turn to the future of the Republican Party in a minute, but one thing that always struck me interesting was that Trump didn't just arise out of thin air. Right and and he, he is I think the product of a longer um, period of time that culminates in in, in his election. I, I interviewed a few weeks back uh, Julian Zelizer, who wrote a book called "Burning Down the House," which mm-hmm. was the rise of of Newt Gingrich mm-hmm. and his smash mouth politics. Yep. And then I remember reading in. The, uh, in Obama's book, his view that this sort of smash mouth politics changing the manner in which people behave as a matter of civil discourse um, really ratcheted up with with Sarah Palin's nomination. So he the, the question that uh, always comes to mind is, is there a need to reckon with the fact that this is not just Trump Arriving on the scene in, in, in 2016, but maybe this is Trump, the culminating, you know, sort of actor in this play that was begun with with um, Gingrich and his go pack memo about the, the choice of words to describe yourself and your your opponents, this fighting words sort of thing. Right. So how do you how do you think about it? as a Republican who's been around for a yeah. while? And you were the head of GOPAC for, a, GOPAC, for a while. I chaired GOPAC. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I, How I do chaired... you think
0: about it in, in in the arc of things? You can't think of it. it seems to me you can't just think about it right. and just say Tr- Trump is a one off aberration. Four years and and now he's gone. And you know, thank God. Well,
1: first, yeah, first off, he's not an aberration. Number two, he's not gone. He will continue to be very much a player inside the the GOP for quite some time to come um thirdly i think people misrepresent or misunderstand the role of sarah palin relative to her selection and nomination uh, for the vice presidency versus what she did after that Uh, they tend to sort of uh sort of glom them all together and say that well you knew this knew who she was well the sarah palin after that election cycle was not the same governor of the state of Alaska. Um, and certainly not the the governor that I worked with when I uh, spent time in Alaska working with the party. Um, so I think people need, need to really stop with the conflation, deconflate a lot of things and look at them as they occur as a timeline. Um, and how, how one thing drives the other. You, Newt Gingrich was not, was actually kind of in the middle of this process. He just, he figured out a way to um, actualize a lot of the the activity, um, to actualize a lot of, that's the wrong word, not activity, a lot of the rhetoric. Um, when you go back and looking at Newt, you have to understand what was the animating reason for a lot of what he did. It was the Democrats' control of the House of Representatives from 1954 Un, including the time in the 1980s when he entered the House up until he was able to res- wrestle control from the Democrats in 1994. No one complained about one party control of the House of Representatives. No one no one, paid attention to what Republicans had to say from a policy, political, or ideological perspective. So that frustration and that animated um, anger um, Uh, materialized and he was able to harness it very much as we saw Trump harness it later on, but a different, in a different form. Um, That even goes back further to what Nixon did in looking at the, the, uh, the break in the democratic party. Once Johnson embraced the civil rights agenda of, of, of the fallen president, uh, John Kennedy, a lot of white Southerners said to hell with this. We're out of here. Remember, the Democrats ruled the South, the Republicans re- ruled the Northeast. Right, um, the, the the what we now know as the Acela Corridor. All of that was Republican. Um, and so, to win the presidency, you had to, you had to you had to break into the South. You had to win the South. You had to win some a lot of the strongholds that the Democrats had, states like Texas, states like South Carolina, Alabama, etc. So Nixon you know, broke away from principle, broke away from what at that point was 100 years of, of, of fealty um, between the African-American community and the Republican Party um, with his Southern strategy to embrace this sort of um, underbelly of our culture because it voted and it would likely vote Republican, which then goes back to the infamous election of 64 with Goldwater, um, where he talks about um, you know, what he's doing um, is, is principled when in fact it wasn't. Uh, and sort of playing, playing along these, playing into these racial divisions that were emerging. So you can begin to see the arc of time and how the party got through its leadership and its rhetoric got caught up in these strategies, um, which now we are paying for dearly uh, today, and and there's no excuse for it. Um, embracing white nationalism, whether it's in the 1960s or the or 2020, um, it is not a winning strategy, and it is not what the country is about, and is not what the country has stood for. Um, in fact, the country has been trying to break itself away and heal itself from that. Um, but we now seem to have opened and reopened those wounds in a way that uh, I think belies any efforts that we think we may have to, you know, welcome African-Americans into the party. And, you know, you know, we want to be the champion for suburban white women. Yeah. Okay. Dude, that does, that's not how this is going to play out. And I think we now
0: see that. So looking from then to now, where do we go from here? What's the, as you see it, what's the, the future of the Republican party? As I, as I read the, the data, there's some disturbing things if I'm a, a Republican, I guess. One is uh, the number of Republicans that have quit the party. Uh, I think the last statistic I saw was about 140,000 Republicans have have quit in, in very recent right. time. But at the same time, in the Quinnipiac poll, the vast majority of Republican voters, 75%, want a, quote, big future role for Trump, and only 20-ish percent want to have a smaller role for him. And so the Republicans still seem in numbers to cling to, to Trump. So what's the future? How do you exercise this?
1: The future is you don't. You don't. Uh, you don't if you don't want to heal yourself. You know, um, look, if if you catch a cold or you get cancer, if you don't take the steps to remediate and and remedy uh, that illness um, or to give yourself a fighting chance, if it's something as serious and severe as cancer, um, what what do you think happens? (laughs) You become consumed by the illness. Um, And so if 75% of Republicans are saying we want more of Trump, after witnessing four years, five years of Donald Trump and his impact and effect, not just on the party, but on the country, on our relationships abroad. Look, I get it. There, there, there are systems that that needed changing and reforms and all of that. Um, so fix them. But you don't you don't go in and, and blow up the house if you've got a leaky pipe. You know, you don't pull up the, the floorboards if, you know, you just need to replace a section of carpet in, in, in the bedroom. Um, so the reality the reality is that level of deconstruction um, uh, has had a, a real negative impact. And to the extent that people want more of that or think that that's the future of the party, that's where the battle lines are going to be drawn. And those that I stand with, like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and and uh, you know miles uh, Davis and, and and a whole bunch of other folks out there who um, are are you know um, active in the space of trying to solve and fix these problems um, if we lose that battle we lose that battle um, but the battle is going to happen it's going um, it, it's going to take place um, and and the reality of it is um, you've got to make a decision. Where do you stand? Um, well, because Donald Trump, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is Donald Trump is not a conservative. Donald Trump is not a Republican. Donald Trump is not pro-life. Donald Trump doesn't care about, those are all tools that he uses at a particular time to generate the level of support that he thinks he needs. Um, you know, this is a man who sits there talks about I love our military and yet he trashes gold star families and calls the calls and now been heard on tape calling members of the military losers for getting killed. So, mm-hmm. you know, so let's be honest about who we're talking about. And if you can't be honest about that, then you've already lost the discussion.
0: Right? You you said I read something you wrote and and you said that the Republican Party either is or isn't something either Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney stand for what something is, or they don't either Marjorie Taylor green or Jim Jordan stand for what it is or they don't. That's the battle. And I stand with Cheney and Kinsinger and um, Romney and let's have that fight. Yep. So fair enough. How is the fight joined? Is it joined um, sort of internally, is it joined by people? I hear that there are conference calls going on where people are talking about do they break out or not breaking right. out? How is the fight? How is the, the, the fight for what we'll call the soul of the, the Republican Party? How is it? How is it joined? How, how, did, how does it manifest itself?
1: You know, it, it, I think it's going to manifest itself in all those ways. I think it's going to manifest itself um, in, in a very public uh, spat. Um, I think it manifests itself uh, in the way that it is now. I've been on a number of those phone calls and in, in a few of those meetings, um, having, having those, those kinds of conversations, Um, You know, with the likes, you know, of, you know, Jim Glassman, former ambassador, um, and um, myself, uh, Charlie Dent, former congressman, we're all trying to figure out, I I said Miles Davis before, of course, that's the musician, I was thinking Miles Taylor, not Miles Davis, um, but with Miles Taylor, former administration official. So there are a whole host of folks who are, are engaged. And that's that's a good thing. I don't know why people are so concerned about that on either side. That's good that there are those of us who actually want to, let's have this discussion. And here's why it's important, Michael, because we've never had it. Since Reagan left office, this, paddle, this party has been having this internal battle and discussion about who it is, what it is, what it isn't. Are we conservatives? Are we Republicans? Are we this? Are we that? The bottom line is, I call myself a Lincoln Republican because I believe in the founding principles that Lincoln and Douglas and those men and women who were part of originating this idea of, of representing all Americans. Right. That still resonates. That still has value and importance. All this other stuff has all been tacked on later on. You know, it was, it's not a conservative idea, to to want people to be free it is an Amer- an american idea and that's what we stand for conservatism is about, conserving a, is about conserving those principles first and foremost those values first and foremost it's not about being you know because someone is pro life or pro choice doesn't make them a conservative what makes them a conservative is whether or not they value the conservation of freedom for every american in my view that's a battle. Now, there'll be people who say, no, absolutely, it's got to be this or that in terms of life in the Second Amendment. Okay. But those policies can change, and they likely will change over time. Um, but you still got to be girded by something. You still have to be grounded to something. Um, and that, for me, is what this this great discussion needs to be about. So let's have it. Because right. trust me, that discussion is not one where Trump stands up and defends anyone on the other side. What's he going, what's, what does he say? How to, how defend, defend putting children in cages, defend that for me as a human rights principle, <laughs> not just a policy, but as a human rights principle defend that for me because that's not conservatism. Um, unfortunately, that's what conservatives some conservatives, some of those same people who are clamoring and holding on desperately to Trump define it to be, well, let's have that discussion.
0: But uh, Ron Brownstein Mm asks the question, um, has the extremist wing of the GOP grown too big for the party to confront?
1: Nothing is ever too big to confront. Nothing. That is a bully mindset. (laughs) That is an absolute bully mindset. I'm sorry, if you're not willing to confront the bully, then you've just lost. You've given you you've not created space for any child on that playground. If if one person insists that well we can't confront the bully, they're just too big. Nothing is ever too big to confront. Tell that to the Patriots who got on a boat and left England. Tell that to those same Patriots when England decided to say now nah, we want y'all to behave yourselves and do what we tell you to do. Who said no? Tell that to Crispus Attucks, the first African-American to die in the revolution for what? Confronting the bully. We have always been about that confrontation when our life, our liberties, and our freedoms are on the line. And so this, if you just want to confine it to a discussion about the, the inner workings of a political party, yeah, there'll be some numb nuts who go, no, nah, we don't need that. I don't want to do that fight. But you have to understand how that spills out onto the streets and what that says and what that means for greater discussion around those very same life liberties and, and pursuits of happiness. If you're not willing to fight the bully on that, if you're not willing to fight that thing, which you think is too big, you've lost. I don't believe in losing.
0: I I get it. I I understand. And I don't know that 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 Ron was asking it in terms of of that, but it's a it's a fair answer. I guess what he's looking at is polling, I suppose, maybe from like the American Enterprise Institute had some polling recently. And it said that the majority of Republican voters believe that, quote, the traditional way, the, the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that they may have to use Force to save it. And that
1: three. And what is, excuse me, what is this traditional way of life that they think is disappearing? Well, Um, can we just say white folks ain't happy about what's happening around them? Let's just call this what it is. We dress this stuff up in these fancy (laughs) conversations around polling. They ask these innocuous, crazy, behind questions that don't get to the nub. Look, the bottom line is. A lot of folks, as I have heard it inside my own party, and it was a big part of my struggle um, inside the party uh, when I was chairman, is these white folks looking around and seeing all these people of color showing up and going, what the hell are we going to do about this? Now, you like our music, and you love when we're out there doing the, you know, bouncing that ball, but now when it's time to claim our part of the American dream, when it's time for you to stop redlining our neighborhoods, and stop shooting our young kids unarmed and stop miseducating our children, everybody seems to have an attitude. And so let's just be honest about what they're afraid of. When Donald Trump goes to white suburban women and says, they're coming into your neighborhood, who the hell do you think he's talking
0: about? No, I I completely get it. And, And we're in agreement. Look, the whole insurrection was all about trying to disenfranchise Black voters of course I mean, who, what, where, who are they challenging Milwaukee right. and and, Matt and, and oh. Atlanta and detroit Wait, yeah and, let's let's pick let's pick the place where most
1: black people live those those serving communities and that didn't vote for Donald Trump and go, well we need not to count, we don't want to count those votes
0: no, and these, I, I, and
1: these Republicans who in the next breath talk about we need to expand the party, well, how the hell are you going to expand the party when you just told all the people in my community you're not allowed to vote
0: well I, and I completely get it and and, and but the, the question, the reason I raise this question of um, the majority of Republican uh, voters feel that the traditional way of American life is disappearing so fast that they don't have, they, they have to use force to to, to save it. it. It brings me to Isabel Wilkinson's cast book mm-hmm. and um, her description of America as a caste system yeah. and that the... These voters who feel that they need to take force in order to preserve the traditional way of American life, she's talking about status within, within the community and that everything derives from this fear of a multicultural society in which whites in 20 years will not be the majority. They will be a minority segment of 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 America and people are just completely so freaking out about it
1: they're, they're going to be treated the way they've treated us for the last 400 years
0: well and that's what the fear oh that's <laughs> exactly and, and <laughs> if you look at the, I mean but but it's it but it's serious stuff when you look at your party because in the um but it's a can American, I just,
1: can I just stop you for a second sure it's not just my party 74, no, I get it. 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. Six million more than voted for him in 2016. This is an American problem. We, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to sort of say, oh, well, that's not happening in my backyard. I know a hell of a lot of white Democrats that fall into that bucket as well. I know a hell of a lot of white independents that fall into that bucket. So this idea that this is this is the disadvantage in the conversation when we're not honest about the true nature of the people who are bitching about the problem and wanting this, this traditional view of America, what exactly is that? Because there was never a white picket moment, white picket fence moment in American history. Tell that to the people who the white people who live in Mississippi and Appalachia. So the reality of it is this ideal that we're, everyone seems to be pining for never really was there. The struggle of America has always been the struggle of making America something greater. That's why our founding document says in order to make a more perfect union, we knew then our founders, despite the roles that they played in institutionalizing slavery, etc., knew that this experiment would take work and it would take struggle and that the ideal will always be that. So I don't, I don't know, I don't see this as, oh, this is just something that's unique inside the GOP. I can tuck you back to elections in which I had a whole lot of signs pop up in my neighborhood from Democrats that weren't the kindest things to say about a black Republican. So the reality of it is, this is something that has been institutionalized across the board. We know the history of the Democratic Party. Okay, it's great. You kind of moved off of that a bit, but don't think you lost all of them. They're still inside your mix too. We know the history of my party and we see that being played out now. So the question for all Americans is how much of this are you going to stomach? And how much are you prepared to push back on more broadly speaking so that you can begin to kill this cancer that seems seemingly infecting, not just us, but all Americans.
0: And I I completely agree. And I think race is the defining issue it's been perhaps the defining issue of, of the history of America. A- but it is absolutely the defining moment. We're at a, a defining moment when, when, when three quarters of Republicans say, and and I take your point because the, the Democrats may not be any better, but they just poll differently. They poll different. But, that's that's exactly well. They, they may think you know <laughs> it, it, it's the it, remember Governor Wilder. Right. Uh He he was ahead. How many points on on, on, on election day? Six points. And then he wins by like point two. And they say, well, how's that happen? And they said, well, because (laughs) the Democrats knew essentially or what to say, what the pollsters wanted to hear. Of course, I would vote for an African-American governor of Virginia. Of course, I would. As soon as pigs fly, (laughs) they've got my vote. (laughs) <laughs> that's right and, and, and how many of these white white governors
1: senators and other Democrats have been caught recently in blackface hello I mean so
0: no I get it me, I get it
1: don't give me this enlightened crap like oh yeah our side we're we're now so enlightened really well, you were you enlightened in the
0: 1980s well yeah just ask <laughs> ask uh, mayor Brady there you go there it's, a, you it's go. the same it's the same thing but n- that that all said. Nobody yes. nobody comes here with clean hands. Right. But polling, and again, we can poo-poo or not poo-poo, but right. polling says three-quarters of the Republicans say that discrimination against whites is as big a problem as it is bias against minorities. Three-quarters of Americans, of Republicans, say that discrimination against whites is as bad as discrimination against blacks. That's a staggering Uh, number to to me. And, and, and maybe it speaks to the greater problem that we have about race in America, but I don't know how you start with that group and think that there's. Well, just because you believe a a
1: thing that, well, just because you believe a thing to be so doesn't make it. So show me the, show me, show me the evidence where, where you've been discriminated against is your neighborhood a red line. Can you get a loan? Can you start a business without having to fill out 700 forms? I mean, show, tell, tell me how your kids are being educated. Now, this goes to the core of my point. There are, there are communities of majority white folks who are living in squalor, who are, are having a hard time, et cetera. But as, as I've heard some folks say, um, that at the end of the day, they can still fall back on their whiteness in the system right? They, they, can't, they can't do that. Um, their encounters with the police don't necessarily end up with their, their, their children with a bullet in them, right? Or, or being pulled over when they drive through certain neighborhoods in the community, um, as opposed to their African American or Hispanic neighbors, et cetera. Um, we all know the outcome of January 6th, if that were a group of Muslims who were protesting and storming the Capitol. We know the outcome there. Let's not even pretend that we don't. And we know if that was Black Lives Matter, because we saw the reaction to Black Lives Matter when they were protesting peacefully, right? So you knew if they went into an all-out assault on the United States Capitol, we know what those same white folks would be saying right now. There's no question about it. And and, So let's be, I mean, I think we just have to be, my thing is, and you put the word of the day in this conversation in play. And it is, it is essential to how we get beyond where we are. It is accountability. And that accountability is especially important with re- accountability with respect to the truth. You don't get to rewrite my history as a Black man in this country because you don't like the fact that I'm upset with the way it's turned out. I don't get to rewrite your history. And that's that we have to be honest about the truth. You put your finger on, again, on the seminal issue of race in this country between black folks and white folks and how that affects everybody else here, Hispanics, Muslims, everybody else, because that 1619 moment set in motion everything that we're experiencing now. And we need to be honest about that and we need to reconcile that. And we need to be accountable to that. You and I as a black man and a white man cannot resolve our differences. If we cannot agree on facts and history.
0: Right. And, and, and it's, it's to that point that I am trying to drive, which is you and I, agree on the history of race in America. Right. You and I agree that there hasn't been an honest conversation about race in America and there haven't been honest solutions about dealings with race in America. And both parties have the 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 stain of racism on their on their party. Look the the People that bolted from the Democratic Party after Johnson signed the Civil Rights Legislation, the the white Dixiecrats, right. they they were Democrats by 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 party affiliation, but but their politics were abominable. I mean, and, and why their some of their uh, senators still have names on the Senate office buildings is 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 a wonder to me. We wonder about taking down right the names of. Um, Confederate generals from, from monuments. What about some of the buildings that are named after one of some of the most racist senators in the history of the United States? Why aren't we talking uh, about that? So races, races is, is the story of, of our nation and it's the story of our day. The only reason I was raising it in context of Republican politics is because it seems so much to me to be part of the Republican DNA today to, to, to not accept that truth, to not accept that.
1: It is, yeah, it is the DNA of some is not the DNA of all. Just like, just back for well over a hundred years, the, the Democratic Party, um, you know, had its anchor in, you know, the formation of the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, all of that and segregation, yada, yada, yada. Okay, it's part of your history. But, you know, it, 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 it's one of many aspects of that history. Um, and it also speaks to how a party can find a way to turn itself around. I would like to offer that same light to the Republican Party. We know our history. We've turned away from that history. So the goal of individuals like myself is to hold that history up again and say, this is who we were, this is who we are. Now tell me you don't want to be this, okay. I get it. Then I'm ready. I'm prepared to move on or you're prepared to move on. But one of us can't, we can't coexist in the same. I'm not standing next to the proud boys. I'm sorry. That ain't happening. I'm not standing next to Marjorie Taylor Jones. She is an abomination. She's an apostate and has no place inside the Republican party. So uh, going back to the point you made earlier, either I'm going to stand up to that big, that big bully and call it out for what it is, or I'm going to retreat from it. I choose not to retreat. And so the goal right now, and the debate for many of us is, do we, do we just say this is unsalvageable? Um, don't waste your time. Trump and Trumpism has, has a stranglehold on this, and that very well may be the conclusion. But there are many of us who aren't really ready to, to to throw in that towel yet. I call myself a Motel Six Republican. Someone's gotta keep the lights on, right? For at least as long as the bulb will burn. Um, but I'm not I'm also not I'm not blind to the point that you raise. And I understand what the polling says with 75% this and 81% that and the just the entrenched embrace of, of Donald Trump for the past, past uh, four years by Republicans. I get it. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to go and draw the lines very clearly so that you and I, not you literally, Michael, but you, a fellow Republican, and I... Know exactly where I stand and where you stand relative to the future of this party, which may or may not have me in it, which may or may not have you in it, but that 's what this line drawing is about right now yeah um, and we 'll see how it plays out
0: yeah, and what 's really i think to me been the most disturbing um, aspect of it is all these numbers that we all these numbers that we 've been saying about. this 40% that when you look at those numbers among white evangelical Christians, Mm -hmm. they're all way worse. Don't get me started. And, and, you know, for a fellow who studied for the priesthood for three years, uh, that, that, that remains to me, the greatest mystery on on earth. I understand if the thought is we're going to make a a, a deal with the devil to get anti-abortion judges on the Supreme court, you know, I don't agree.
1: By the way, we'll be proven not to be anti-abortion judges, but that's another conversation. But, that's the but, great irony here.
0: Yeah, well, but among that group, among that group, Michael, oh my goodness, the the, 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 the polling is terrifying.
1: Yeah, again, that they, they are the same people that you were referring to earlier, you and I were talking about earlier, who um, are, feel dispossessed, Feel put upon. They have. They are the new victims. As much as they complain about about Democrats and and their victim victimhoodness and 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 their you know cancel culture and all this other stuff. Uh, what do you think is happening inside the GOP right now? They're canceling uh, Liz Cheney. They're they're canceling uh, you know those who who vote their conscience. You actually have on tape, it was shown on my air in an interview I did earlier today, um, uh, a county chairman in the state of Pennsylvania, Washington County, I believe, was a chairman, saying, we didn't, we didn't elect Pat Toomey uh, to vote his conscience. We didn't elect that Pat Toomey um, to um, you know, express any view other than what we want him to express. Really? Is that how that works? You know, oh, so your narrow view is the only view in the world that Pat Toomey should consider, regardless of the other 25 million people who live in the state of Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, well, it, I mean, Pennsylvania. Oh, my God, Pennsylvania. They, they are now talking about gerrymandering judicial districts. They're, yeah. they're talking about doing away with statewide judicial elections so that they can gerrymander the types of judges they want on a district-by-district basis because they were so upset with the fact that the judiciary in Pennsylvania didn't find fraud in, 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 the, in, the, in the counting of the votes in Pennsylvania. And the only it,
1: thing that can be said about that is be careful the actions you take today. They will be used against you tomorrow. Do not think that throughout all your gerrymandering and all your trying to fix the system to favor your kind, that in short order the opposition will have control of those reins. And then what do you do? Then what do you say? And and the only thing I can say is an example is Harry Reid. Harry Reid was warned not to mess with the voting process, with with the uh, judicial noms. Um, and and back when he was speaker, I mean, majority leader, and he changed because he wanted to get Obama's judges through. And guess what happened?
0: Three judges later, Merrick
1: Garland, right? They used the system, and you went up against one of the best, baby. You went up against one of the best in Mitch McConnell, and he made you pay for it. And he made you pay for it over and over again. Don't think that narrative does not turn around state by state across the country. And, it, and the last point on that is it also shows just how void of anything other than Donald Trump the party is right now. I mean what do you, why do you have to do that? you are you you're looking to gerrymander gerrymander judicial districts because a judge wouldn't sacrifice his oath and find fraud where there was no fraud because you in your stupidity believe there was. And I say stupid because you didn't use your own mind and look at the facts presented in front of you. You just listened to one man telling you that there was fraud. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. You didn't follow, Donald Trump. You didn't follow Ronald Reagan that way. You didn't follow, follow George Bush that way. You didn't follow Dwight Eisenhower that way. And yet with this man, you will sacrifice truth and reality because he tells you to believe something that he just made up. He's in the biz- in the business of creating a false reality, and you buy it. So the reality of the reality is all of this comes back on the party. It is not going to be without a price, and I don't know. well, I do know, the party's not prepared to pay that price. They just aren't. I mean, you heard that um, in in what what Mitch McConnell said. Mitch McConnell votes to acquit Donald Trump and then immediately says yeah he did it. <laughs> right.
0: Right. It's crazy. Right. It's crazy. Although interestingly, you know, McConnell said in 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 that speech which will, you know, for me go down as one of the most unbelievable speeches of all time. He says that we can't impeach because the articles of impeachment weren't brought to the Senate when the Senate was in session and Trump was in office. But of course he refused to hear he those to
1: receive them. articles,
0: right. receive those articles. And then he says that even though the Senate voted that it has jurisdiction, I'm going to nullify the the, the, the vote and, and still say that we don't, we don't have it. And then he ends. I mean, the thing that, that he ends with, which is he says he didn't get away with anything yet. We have a criminal justice. We have a criminal justice system in this country, and we have a civil litigation system. As a former president, he's not immune from being accountable to either one. Now you think, well, we'll wait and see. But then today we read that the NAACP has brought an act under the the, the 42 U.S.C. 1983, mm-hmm. which is the KKK Act of of 1871. They filed a, a civil lawsuit against Trump Giuliani. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for monetary damages for inciting a violent riot against the Capitol and preventing the government from certifying the the election. So maybe maybe there'll be accountability on the back end. Yeah, there but- may
1: be accountability, but understand what Mitch McConnell was doing with that last point. What he was doing was he wants he wants the the Biden Justice Department and 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 Democrat. Uh, Democratic um, attorneys generals around the country, uh, particularly in places where Trump, you know, they could reach Trump, you know, Florida, New York, etc., uh, to to do what he didn't want to do.
0: Yeah, that's the take- big
1: up, That's the big setup for 2022. What do you think he's going to do in 2022 when you know the the U.S. attorney for the you know Southern District of New York files a lawsuit against uh, a criminal lawsuit? against private citizen Trump. He's going to use that as a badge of, you know, of honor to run against Democrats. Yeah, See, yeah. They're, still persecu- they're still persecuting Trump because it doesn't matter whether you play his words back to his face. We've seen that. We've seen Lizzie Graham laugh at the lies he told us. Says, yeah, yeah it's a lie. So what? What are you going to do about it? And what happened? He got reelected. Yeah. So this is, this is going back to the question for me about accountability. At what point as citizens are we going to be hold ourselves accountable for the kind of men and women we put in office who are prepared to lie to us to flout the constitution and quite frankly don't give a damn. We can't complain because we keep reelecting them.
0: Yep. So I've got two more questions. I know sure. we're, we're we're running up and against the, the the clock. Sure. First question relates to what you said about Harry Reid and judges. And for the listening audience, Harry Reid is majority leader. Changes the the rules of the Senate with respect to the number of votes you need to confirm a judge because the Republicans are filibustering mm-hmm. um, the Obama judges and they're not getting them through. And Reed just at his wits' end, decides to change the the the, the voting obligations and he Obama gets some judges through. But of course, what happens when when uh, they lose control of the Senate? All the Republican judges get through um, like an open. Spigot. And so it's be careful what you wish for. But mm-hmm. it raises the question that E.J. Dion has been talking about in The Washington Post a lot. He says that essentially the Democrats may have two years only um, before they're out of power somewhere, House or, or, or the Senate. And he says it's imperative that if they're going to do anything that's progressive to protect voting rights and end gerrymandering and um, other voter suppression techniques that we're just talking about now, like the judges uh, and the gerrymandering, it's time to end the filibuster and through reconciliation, push this legislation through. We have no choice but to do that. And yes, I guess he understands that there may be consequences to pay, but he says we're at such a fragile point in our democracy that we can't allow, especially S1 and HR1, which is the big voting rights protection rules um, to not go through when we when the Democrats have control, what you what's your thinking?
1: I just I go back to be careful what you do. This stuff will come back to bite you. You're absolutely right that they won't have control of the Senate, the White House, and the, and the Congress um, probably going into the 2024 cycle. Um, and if you if you uh, open up that Pandora's box and make the Senate no better than the House legislatively speaking. Um, what do you think is going to happen? You think you think um, you think that you know a a, a majority leader, um, Ted Cruz, is going to be a, a be a better arbiter in that scenario where he's got unfettered power and control with a fifty one seat majority. I mean, for all for all the pain and anguish that's associated with you know the filibuster, it is an appropriate check. The Senate was designed that way by the, by the founders for a reason, um, and and the House was designed the way it was. The House is the raucous chamber; that's the one where everybody kind of throw food at each other and, you know, you know, tear up each other's homework and all of that stuff. But in the Senate, it's supposed to be a more, more refined process. It, it has been said that it is the place where legislation goes to die. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, sometimes good sometimes bad, but either way it is it is an appropriate check on a system that has now ceded more power to the executive branch than at any point in the founding of of this country and so how do you how do you if you take all of that off take those checks out out of out of play what do you think you're going to get I get the frustration but you actually have to do the work <laughs> yeah. and you know there are tools in which the majority leader can use to 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 pull people into the orbit that they need them pulled into to do the work
0: yeah in theory i mean i guess in theory the owns, the i owns,
1: mean look owns, it, what show me what what did it work for the last 50 years
0: yeah maybe but maybe, we're, so, at so, maybe mean, we're at a different i mean a different point
1: What makes this point different than when you're fighting to get the great society package together, the Johnson package, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, right? What's different? When Nixon was getting the EPA created, um, what was different? There was resistance to those policies. There were politicians lining up on all sides screaming at the president's when we saw what Republicans tried to do with, with Roosevelt and, and his great society and his, in his new deal, right. And his court packing efforts. Imagine, imagine if you didn't have those checks in place, what Roosevelt would have done. All right. So I get our frustration in this time with the way the system is working and maybe perceived not to be working but just think of how not just how different it would be, but how more difficult it will be if one party has absolute control, and you have a Trump, a Trumpian majority leader, and a Trumpian Speaker of the House, and a, a more sophisticated Donald Trump sitting in the White House. What do you think that America looks like?
0: Uh, I don't know. I'll be viewing it from Canada, so it'll be hard to know. <laughs> <laughs> But Michael Steele, let me just ask you one last question. Sure. And you don't have to answer it, it, it okay. if you don't want. And this has been wonderful. Thank you. It's been really, oh, no, really enjoyed
1: it. I thoroughly I, enjoyed it.
0: You know, when when I went into the interview thinking, "Are we going to just talk about Republican politics?" I thought, "Well, you know, I don't know how long that you know can be a sustainable. But when we move into the politics of race and race in America and the the the, the legacy of that, we could talk. All day, because yeah. it is, as we said, it is the, the defining issue of the nation, the defining issue of, of the moment. And unless there's some sort of truth and reconciliation about this, we're not going anywhere right. um, meaningfully as as a society is my, my two cents on it. I but, agree. So my final question to you is, I, I, I read in newspapers that, that there may be an open seat for the governor's uh, <laughs> position in, in Maryland. Um, <laughs> And I don't know, as we were going to ask you, had you read about that also, that there there may be I've an heard. election? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've heard. Yeah, you know, I've, I've never been the coy type. I, I don't do coy well. And I hate politicians who pretend they're not doing something when they're actively looking at and thinking about it. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in it because I believe in the value of public service. Uh, I believe in the value of leadership. Uh, and I think um, uh, the country, our state, um, 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 would like to have that level of consistency. Um, Governor Hogan has been a phenomenally good uh, uh, and important governor for Maryland. And, um, you know, I'd like to continue on in the tradition of of Bob Ehrlich and Larry Hogan from the Republican side, but also given my own particular brand of bipartisanship um, and uh, how I've, uh, you know, moved in this political system I think I may have something to offer. You know, the issues are no less complicated today than they were when I was elected Lieutenant Governor uh, and served uh, in 2003. And um, so, yeah, we'll take a look and we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see how America, uh, you know, Marylanders mm-hmm. respond to the idea um, of, of a potential run and and the value of that to them. And if there's value there and there's a possibility... Uh, and my wife says okay we're in
0: all right so you've, you the, the first part's the easy part the wife's permission is always going to be the most challenging it's always the hard part <laughs> yes it is well i have to tell you in my in my um election as an anc commissioner without my wife i would never have been elected yeah, not exactly. only did she you know if you say if you will give me permission but but she was my campaign chairman she's now my um chief of staff and nothing wow, i write wow. nothing i write or say goes out untested through. Oh, that so- is good. Now that's not my wife. My,
1: my, my wife, my wife is, she's always been like, do you really have to do that? You know, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's been, she's been a real soldier and a real, a real uh, blessing and friend uh, in, in all these journeys. So we'll see how it plays out. But for me, it is about the value of service. Um, I enjoyed my time as Lieutenant governor and uh, I think I have something to offer. And Uh, I know that there are a lot of Republicans in in my party um, who aren't happy with me, not because I'm not pro-life, not because, uh, you know, not because I'm pro-life, I am pro-life, or not because, you know, I have some aversion to the Second Amendment, which I don't. All those things that they've always claimed were so important on the litmus test. No, it's because I don't believe in authoritarianism and I don't believe in um, a a cult of personality um, at any level. and. You know, I know some of these very same people had had issues with uh, with with George Bush, uh, forty three, um, uh, and yet I never said, "Oh, you aren't Republican, and you aren't this." Uh, we work through them, so we'll see how it works out.
0: <laughs> well, I think Marylanders are are a different breed. I think they 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 think independently. They do, and, they do, uh, and I think that's that's. That bodes well for you, Michael Steele. Well,
1: I hope so. And I look, Michael, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, I didn't think it would get as deep as it did at certain points. I'm glad it did. Uh, and uh, you were the perfect host for that conversation.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. That said, is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at ThatSaidZeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I am Michael Zeldin.